Welcome to FRT episode 86. I'm Natalia Bailey of the IIF, and I'm joining from my home in Arlington, Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C. We had quite an eventful start of the year here in Washington, with the inauguration of President Joe Biden and the historic inauguration of Vice President Kamala Harris, the start and culmination of the impeachment trial of former President Trump, and the continued race to roll out vaccines at a faster pace. Today's episode touches on some of the themes that we've seen played out the last couple of years in the public sphere with disinformation and increased awareness of bias and ethics. We will be discussing today data ethics and DBS Bank's Pure Framework. I'm joined today by our guests, Shikin Lam, Jeffrey Lee, and Samir Gupta from DBS Bank, and my colleague, Dennis Ferenzi. Shikin is Managing Director and Head of Legal and Compliance of DBS Bank. He joined us last September at the IIF Digital Interchange, where we had a highly constructive discussion on data ethics in the modern economy. Chikin also participated in the Monetary Authority of Singapore group of industry players that helped develop the feed principles, fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency in the use of AI and data analytics in finance. We met Jeffrey and Samir virtually a few months ago to discuss Pure, DBS Bank's data management and governance framework um, as part of a series of case studies that are going to be featured in an upcoming paper of the IF Data Ethical Charter. And if I may borrow some of Shikin's words, he described them as the real architects of PURE. Jeffrey is Managing Director, Legal and Compliance, and Samir is Managing Director, Chief Analytics Officer at DBS Bank. Shikin, Jeffrey, and Samir, thank you for joining us and welcome to FRT. Hello, thank you. Thank you for having us here, uh, Natalia and IIF colleagues. It's our pleasure to contribute. Happy to be here. Many thanks for the introduction. Very happy to be here. So, as some of our listeners may know, DBS has made responsible data use a key priority over recent years. As Natalia just mentioned, the bank participated in the Monetary Authority of Singapore's group of industry players that helped develop the fee principles. And DBS has also developed its own framework, known as Pure, for addressing ethical concerns as they relate to AI and machine learning. Chikin, could you please describe DBS's wider approach to responsible data use? And within your response, touch upon the bank's Pure framework. Yeah, thanks so much, Dennis. I think um, I'll approach this response uh, perhaps first by trying to set a bit of context, right? If we think about customer expectations with regard to their transactions, with regards to their payments, with regards to their cash, and you know, if I may put a slightly stronger term on that, right? It's not just the cash. In many cases, it's their life savings. So customers trust banks with these things. And over time, what has happened in the financial industry is we've developed a lot of tools in relation to how we uphold that trust. You know. We don't want you to lose your money. We want to preserve the integrity of transactions. Uh, we want to maintain capital buffers. We don't want to create mis-selling. So over time, a lot of tools have developed in relation to assets, financial assets. So data is the emerging asset, right? It's proving its value. The manipulation, the processing of data is also showing how this is uh, good. Uh, a better world for the future, so to speak. Um, but I think um, we need the equivalent of the tools or new tools uh, that exist for financial assets, for financial transactions. We need the equivalence of these 
in relation to data. And so that is one of the uh, guiding principles for how DBS looks at this. And we don't just want to be, in a sense, uh, legally compliant. Uh, we want to uphold customer trust in relation to how we use uh, data. So with that context in mind, uh, you can break down the way we look at this into three basic buckets. The first basic bucket is, can I use the data, right? Which is your legal, your regulatory framework, considerations around data privacy, outsourcing, data lineage, data accuracy, data integrity. All these kinds of things are really, really important and they are a fundamental baseline to making sure that actually when we uh, collect and store the data, we are discharging all our baseline legal regulatory considerations. Okay, so the, the anchor statement here is, can I use the data? Then the second aspect of this is just because you can use the data, it doesn't mean that you should use the data, right? So the second question is, should we use the data? And here, here is where, you know, I really want to give credit to the teams that worked on this, right? So Jeff's team, and Samir's team, Jeff working in legal and compliance, and Samir, who's our chief analytics officer, really working on the use cases and all the things that you know we can do to make customers' lives better uh, by using data responsibly. So this second part here is uh, DBS calls it pure. P stands for purpose, U stands for unsurprising, R stands for respectful, and E stands for explainable. So it expresses DBS's uh, aspiration and intent in terms of trying to say every time we use data, it's got to be pure, right? So purposeful, we have to be convinced that the purpose is a real purpose, it's a genuine purpose, it's a legitimate purpose, it's in the best interest of the bank, of customers, of society as a whole, right? So um, um, U stands for unsurprising that the use of the data in any reasonable context would be unsurprising to the data subject's uh, perception, right? So in other words, customers finding out that DBS is using the data in this way would consider this an unsurprising use of the data. R stands for respectful. So in addition to the customer's concerns, we want to be mindful of the context, the societal context in which the use of data sits. So I'll give you a simple example. Um, in certain contexts, certain types of use cases of data may be inappropriate, right? So for example, something that may be considered okay in Singapore may not be okay in Indonesia. Something that's considered okay in Europe may not be considered okay in Hong Kong or China. These dynamics are captured in this concept of R, respectful. And E, explainable, we've got to pass in a sense the, the mathematical discipline uh, in terms of using data, and we've got to be able to uh, be able to explain how we're using the data in, uh, well, so to speak, natural language, right? You've got to be able to say, yep, these are the data inputs, they are logical data inputs, they are processed in this way, and the output is like this. And that's, I think, really important. So um, can I use the data? Should I use the data? And then the third aspect of DBS's responsible data uh, use uh, framework is how do I use the data? And this basically, basically captures model governance. What you want to make sure is that even though you've uh, set out and you've done a use case of data, you make sure that over time, that intended use, uh, the intended processing, the intended outcome 
the underlying data, all that remains fit for purpose over time that captures uh, model governance. Um, so I think it's, it's really been a journey um, as we have compared ourselves to you know, many frameworks that exist in the industry. I suppose DBS has decided to go this way because I think we're quite, um, uh, we're quite engaged on the idea of uh, purpose driving everything that we do. And we like the emotional resonance behind Pure, right? It, it's it's quite easy to actually explain to people, yeah, we want our data used to be pure. We don't want it to be impure. So for these reasons, we've decided to use uh, this this framework. I hope that clarifies, uh, Dennis, and that gives the context in which uh, DBS does its work. Absolutely, that's great. Thanks, Chigen. Uh, it's very interesting, and it definitely highlights DBS as an important leader in the space. It also gives us a great foundation for the episode and some context for the rest of our discussion here. Now, I think Natalia has some specific questions related to the framework, so I will turn it back over to her. I have to agree with you, Shikin, that I like the idea of it being driven by purpose. And I also really, I mean, personally, like that pure is very easy to understand from a customer's view. Of course, I'm not one of your customers since I'm all the way in the US, but it is very easy from the customer perspective to understand it. So I, I want to ask Jeff and, and Samir a bit more about how has Pure's review process allowed for DBS Bank to examine new use cases? Thanks, Natalia. Uh, maybe I'll take a first stab on use cases and then Jeffrey, uh, please add in. So one of the things we did when we were developing the framework and uh, it took quite an effort and you know when Pure first came up and uh, it actually came up from the LCS team, uh, which just shows you how progressive our LCS team is. It just resonated with the entire team and everyone very quickly for the same reason that it just was simple, easy. It also captured the essence. And when we developed this pure framework, we said we have to do two things. One is we already use, we have existing use cases of data in which we use across the bank, in our consumer bank, in our uh, commercial bank. And how do we, how do we make sure that we go back and do an assessment of these use cases and against the pure framework so that we can with the purpose of so that we can we can what we call whitelist if they are okay so that other use cases that come and which follow the same principles we are okay with so that was one which is going back and looking at all the use cases and coming up with that the second part was any new use case so any new product any new use case whether it's a new campaign where we leverage new sets of data where we are targeting a new product or a new service or something totally new which is not there uh, or even targeting a new segment um, of customers. We, we said that any of those things where we are doing it, we will uh, put it through the pure framework starting with the self-assessment and then through a pure committee uh, with the view that let's have the deliberation across multiple folks before we say yes, we are okay with it. And if we are not okay with it, what are some of the mitigants that we could have around it? So that's how we uh, first went and made sure that all our existing use cases were, were appraised and assessed with a pure framework with a view to whitelist such framework uh, principles. And two, anything new that we do uh, goes through a pure framework across all our markets. Yeah, I'll just add on to what Samuel uh, has explained. So when we started, when we came up with we need to think about the, the whole review process and how that should work and give us a level of comfort that there's good governance and there's clear accountability. 
um, there are a few design principles that we had in mind at that time. Um, I think the first one is we, we need to be nimble. It should not be bureaucratic. Um, we are very conscious of our time to market and our competitive advantage um, in that. We, use, we also have a concept that our business and support units should be accountable for their use of data. Right? That's why we go with a self-assessment uh, and the operating model that we set up uh, that we guided each business and support units to, you know, to operate in um, actually help us to drive that accountability. So, so that's that's how the process works. Um, we also created a a rubric, uh, you know the whitelist rubric that Samuel briefly mentioned, um, to guide our our businesses, uh, with respect to what kind of use cases they have. This goes to a pure assessment, so that that's very clear to them. Uh, the self assessment requires uh the use case owner to evaluate and review and making sure that there are clear evidence and mitigating factors meeting the supporting the principles. Uh, and it has to be approved by someone senior, really senior within the business unit or even at committee level uh, within that business unit with respect to that assessment. Yeah. In, in a situation where the use case is so compelling, but there could be various aspects of the principles that could not be fully met, um, but the business really think that uh, that gives us a, a very strong competitive edge that helps to propel the main objective that is doing right by our customers and um, and then we really want to explore that further. That's where the use case will get presented to the Responsible Data Use Committee for deliberation and approval. Um, that committee, uh, like what Samuel said, is uh, has a very diverse composition. Unlike the usual risk committee that we have in the bank or many other banks, this committee has representatives from sustainability, from our corporate communications group, from our human resource team, uh, from audit, right? So, so just to make sure that there, and also for to take into account the social norms of, uh, of the country where the use case will be deployed, we will have country representative. So that's really to make sure that we think through various aspects of that use case and that we are at the end of the day comfortable that it can be done um, or, or otherwise uh, reject that use case. So maybe just to, to clarify, and it's a bit of a follow-up question. So how is it determined if an outcome is, I'm going to use chicken's word, impure? Yeah, so why not I take that question? Um, when you're going through the self-assessment, the self-assessment has been drafted uh, with guiding, principle, uh, guiding questions on how to address the principles. Um, and across the bank, we actually trained more than 18,000 employees on responsible data use. And we also specifically trained uh, more than 900 use case practitioners so that they understand the process, they understand what's the expectation and what are the requirements. So taking an example on, for example, the principle of unsurprising, where data use should be expected by our customers or our employees, right? And we, the guiding questions we put there would be things like, would the individuals or, or, or the corporations expect the bank to have that data? Right? Would they expect their data to be used by us in that in this way? Right? So that talks a lot about how our disclosure, how our transparency and the value exchange that we have explained to our customers and making sure that they will not be taken by surprise in the way their data is being used. We go further to also ask the question, whether the data, will data use align with market practice and regulatory development of, of the country, whether use case be deployed. Um, we wanted, again, that, that helped to support, support whether 
that data used to be unsurprising, right? And if we happen to be the first in the market to use the data in this way, should we not test that first and test the sentiments, test whether it's okay before we go ahead? So those are questions that we ask, and, and the expectation is for self-assessment to produce evidence uh, against all these questions to make sure that at the end of the day, we are comfortable that the data used will be unsurprising. And then they're subject to a senior level of review and approval. So if I may add, um, if we put in a lot of structure to help guide the discussion, but also recognizing the fact that uh, there is a lot of subjectivity uh, in this space. Uh, and and what, what one individual might find unsurprising, another might not. And that's where this whole thing was really, how do we bring a cross-section of leaders across all parts of the bank, country, even people from our sustainability division or other areas, where, so we can have diverse views coming in and deliberating. So it's not just at a single point, whether from a risk angle or a LCS angle or a business angle, but very diverse view so we can deliberate and do that. And this is really, to me, that is the deliberation process is where there is a lot of richness, both in terms of understanding what we are trying to do uh, and why are we doing it? Also, where could be some mitigation factors if we find that uh, there are some things which don't don't we need to do more around? Uh, so they might we might change how we are communicating, how the respect goes. A lot of that things goes in into that. I was going to say that some of the things that I've been reading in terms of using a cross-sectoral committee are really important when it comes to data ethics, and especially when we're talking about using machine learning on AI, or AI. So I think, I mean, I have to agree with you, this deliberation process that you have in place, to me, is also one of the most interesting aspects of Pure, the fact that you were actually able to have this involvement of, as you say, senior management, but also individuals that are part of different different parts of the business, corporate and sustainability. Um, and I, I think you also mentioned this about having these local considerations um, I find particularly interesting. Um, and when it comes to, to having these uh, broader perspectives, um, one thing that that I want to ask you, and, and I know the answer <laughs> uh, for, for that is, but I think it will be interesting for our listeners is to know the level of board involvement, um, of your board involvement in Pure. So maybe you can, you both can touch on that. Yeah, sure. So in terms of the, uh, initiation of this discussion, uh, the board actually challenged us to think about responsible data use. It was consistent with the direction and the thinking that we were heading on already, but we did appreciate the idea of our board um, really laying down the challenge. I also should give a bit of context here. One of our board members uh, holds uh, a PhD in artificial intelligence, and so he have very specific knowledge and input around the issue and therefore be an effective diverse point of view and an effective challenge against the views of management as well. So we went through a process of about a year uh, iterating and iterating until we finally came up with Pure and then we took it into a board meeting. So this is one of our strategy offsites every year and we presented what we thought at the strategy offsite and from that final discussion uh, the board endorsed uh, our approach to responsible data use 
and then that was when uh, management then said, okay, good, this is fit for purpose, uh, it's good to go, and we started implementing it. So, Shikin, I, I think that the point you're making about having an expert on AI at your board of directors, it's really important. And I think just having different discussions with, with other members, um, the fact that you have that really signals DBS embracing accountability on, on AI and on machine learning models. And I think it also gives the right signal on the commitment that your firm has on data ethics. Now, if we could shift to the topic of regulation around ethical artificial intelligence. Chicken, do you see regulation as necessary for implementing ethical AI, or is self-regulation the way to go? In the latter case, can companies be trusted with building ethical AI practices in the absence of agreed-upon standards? Yeah, thanks, Dennis. I think you're touching on really, really great, um, important issues. And I do think we need to learn over time. Uh, you know, I did, I did emphasize that it took the financial sector, you know, a long time, right, to learn about capital, liquidity, mis-selling, misconduct, um, really all those things that we now take for granted in the context of customers' transactions and customers' uh, assets. And I think, you know, the whole world probably has to go through the equivalent uh, in terms of thinking about data. So let me just throw out a few um, uh, thoughts uh, uh, around this area. I think regulation is exceedingly useful for level setting, right? I think what regulation allows is for, in a sense, almost uh, uh, the, the sector, right? Because we have to anticipate that data ecosystems will develop, financial institutions will interact with ride-hailing companies, will interact with e-commerce companies. And I think level setting standards around data use uh, is going to be helpful, right? Um, I also feel, and this may sound a little bit controversial, that I think we need very strong criminal deterrence around irresponsible data use. I think we've also got to signal to society that if people, so not necessarily companies, right? They could be individuals, could be companies, but we've got to come up with this set of criminal deterrence to really, really show that society stands against irresponsible data use. So not just hacking, ethical misuse of data in ways that are unanticipated by society. I think there's a space for regulation to operate there. Um, I'm going to add that these are kind of personal views. I'm not sure that you know the conversations have gone far enough yet uh, in terms of you know developing the consensus necessary, but these I think the two value added areas where regulation can help. A related point, however, and which creates a debate on self-regulation or kind of like companies demonstrating accountability, right? Um, you shouldn't wait for a regulation to tell you to do something. You should be accountable enough to basically say, you know what, even in the absence of regulation, I want to be accountable for this. And I think that's one guiding principle for why self-regulation is quite important. And I think a, a related point to this is, is as follows, right? I think we have to expect that the technology will move really, really quickly and that the business models will also move in pace with the technology. The public policy conversation tends to take a little bit longer because actually the public policy conversation is this balance between, hey, let's take a look at the technology and the business moving and if it's good for the economy, then why don't we accelerate it or incentivize it in some way, right? And then as 
the businesses kind of start showing their flaws and as mistakes start being made, that's when the public policy debate starts kicking in and that's when the regulation starts kicking in as well. So I think because there's this inherent time lag in the majority of the public policy thinking and regulation, there is a case for um, companies to forge ahead, show accountability within the guardrails of, as I said before, a level setting that is achieved by regulation and a pretty big criminal deterrent underlying irresponsible use of data. Um, just my two cents on this topic. Great question, by the way, Dennis. Thank you. Yes, and those are very fascinating insights, especially your point around criminal deterrence. It will be really interesting to see how the space evolves over the coming year. But there's another interesting aspect here um, that in relation to ethics, data, and AI, and machine learning, and that is the discussion that we've been having several numbers about human in the loop. Um, so before all of you to answer and give your view, do you believe that there has to be a human in the loop for all of the AI systems before they make consequential decisions about people? Uh, maybe I'll take a stab at that. I think that's a very interesting question, and it is uh, it, it is something that we have to deliberate around. And the way, so, but again, I the whole trade-off between the human in the loop and uh, and an automated decision. I think a lot of the the value of AI and all is that if the faster the automated decision, the faster you can get to the customers with preferences and recommendations that make sense for them. That's what also is one of the aspects of providing value. And therefore, anytime you put a human into the loop, which is then are you slowing down that aspect and doing it? And I think the Singapore government we've been working very closely with in terms of their framework around where are the areas uh, based on uh, impact, so risk impact or potential impact or potential harm that the AI system can bring and the feasibility and then trying to say, where should we really look to do human in the loop and where should we okay for not have that? And this is still a space that is evolving, but I think just to put it in a, maybe an example. So let's take driverless cars and the promise of driverless cars. Um, and if I was to take it to an extreme point, having a human in the loop in a driverless cars means that you have a person in every car that is driverless. Just let that sink in that it that means that well basically you have a driver in every car. So how do you balance between those two? And I think those are these essence, uh, the issue that we will have to grapple with as we go along. But but obviously we want to make sure that where there is potential of harm is very high. And how do we uh, how do we bring the human in the loop from an accountability standpoint, in a monitoring standpoint? in being responsible for the AI systems that are producing the results. But at the same time, how do we balance between that every decision has to be looked at by a human before it goes out? I think those are some of the considerations that we would have to really, really think through. Yeah, I think some of the references in literature that I've seen really set out three options, right? So human in the loop isn't the only option, and it's not binary with human out of the loop. So in other words, it's not just a decision between human out of the loop and human in the loop. Um, the other option that I've seen is uh, human over the loop. Um, and I think as we learn a lot more about use cases, right? So for example, 
if I know you're in this area and I know you've permissioned lunch recommendations, I know it's 12 o'clock and I know you like eating chicken rice in this restaurant, right? It seems relatively trivial if you've asked for recommendations to give you a discount coupon against your favorite chicken rice restaurant. Uh, that is a very simple example of a use case where it's probably indisputable that human out of the loop is probably going to be uh, the best balance between the customer interest, the, the actual job to be done, and the, and the use case for the data. In human over the loop, instead of actually obsessing the human into every single decision, what you do is you set up a framework and you say that these types of decisions will allow human to be out of the loop. But if it hits this level of risk uh, seriousness, then we will bring the human into the loop. But we allow the human to be over the loop in terms of uh, setting up that overall framework. A really good example for this is uh, the way legal and compliance sets up their anti-money laundering uh, prioritization. So we run anti-artificial intelligence algorithms on top of anti-money laundering alerts. And they do a lot of computational analysis in relation to how likely it is one of these alerts is going to be serious. Or is it going to be more akin to a customer trying to pay a medical bill in, an, you know, in, a, in, in a medical emergency or a customer that has just for the first time sent their student uh, to university, um, which also can generate anti-money laundering. So alerts with a very low probability of being suspicious, uh, we tend to say, no, actually human out of the loop is going to be okay for those situations, but we'll keep a human over the loop to make sure that the prioritization is done properly. So just some real life examples as to how we think through, uh, you know, human in the loop, human out of the loop, and human over the loop as a, as a comparison to what uh, uh, Samir just, just described. It really does come down to use case and the impact analysis of the risk outcome uh, that is, or the harm outcome uh, that is attached to the particular use case. Jack, do you want to add anything on this question? Yeah, sure. I, I think it's both a design question as well as a risk question. So the autonomous vehicle is a, is a re really good example of a design question. And then how do you manage the risk following that design decision? And conversely, uh, what Chiki has mentioned about uh, human in the loop, human out of the loop, human over the loop is a risk question. Um, and how best would the solution be to mitigate the risk that we are seeing with respect to the potential harm to individuals that the uh, AI decision could make? Uh, so, so I think it's both of that. Thank you. Um, I think we've had so, so much today, and our listeners, they've got to hear about many important issues. So I, I want to quickly summarize some of them, and I know I'm not going to really do justice to everything that we have discussed today. So I'll pick just the ones that stood out the most to me. And I think I have five of them right now. And the first one is the importance of customer trust and data as an emerging asset. And I like what Shikin said at the beginning of, you know, needing the equivalent of new tools for financial transactions in relation to data. The second point that also stood out to me was this criminal angle to responsible data use. And I really like to see how that evolves over time. Um, the third one for me was accountability in the absence of regulation. Um, and on Pure, which is, I think, one of the most important things we discussed today, um, the deliberation process that is part of your to me really stands out and the mitigation process that was developed. And I think that many of the firms that are listening to, to the podcast, they can learn from this. 
Um, and bringing that point that we discussed earlier on that cross-sectoral responsible data use committee being something that I think other firms can look at and see how it's been working in practice. And finally, the human in the loop discussion that we just had, human involvement having to do very much with the use case and the impact analysis on the harm um, outcome that is attached to that. Um, I also like that bit about the design question and the risk question and how the best solution will be something in between. Um, you've given us so much tonight in the morning for you. Um, and, and I really want to thank you. Uh, I think this has been a very interesting and very insightful discussion that we've had. Um, and I think that will be so for our listeners as well. So once again, thank you so much, Kikin, Jeffrey, and Samir for sharing your time and insights with us today. I'm sure our listeners really appreciate it. Looking ahead on FRT, a few things we want to highlight. We'll look at national strategies for digitalization in Egypt and across the Middle East with Amar Ataya Ahmed of Bank Mizra and the IAS Middle East Chief Economist Garbis Iridian. We'll discuss central bank digital currencies with Nordea's Johanna Leibeck Lilia. And we'll explore developments in digital identity with SecureKeys CEO Greg Wolfen. Please stay safe and join us again for those upcoming episodes. I'm Dennis Ferenzi. Thanks for joining us on FRT.